0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 23rd, 2023, the Is Polling Broken Edition. I am David Potts of CityCast. It's actually pre Thanksgiving here, taping a little bit pre Thanksgiving. I'm in Washington, D.C., but excited for Thanksgiving, which is my Christmas, uh, ironically. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time from New York City. Hello, John.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Did we work out the introductions
0: properly? Yeah, that was okay. All right. That worked fine. No, no crosstalk. This week on the GabFest, an influential article argues that polling is broken. Is it? What does it mean for polling to be broken? How can it be fixed? Then the turmoil at open AI and what it signifies for the rest of the world, for the political world, for the world that we occupy, not just the world of technology. We will talk to the Atlantic's Charlie Warzel about his reporting on open AI. Then Emily has a fascinating piece about the failure of the negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians in the 1990s and how it set the stage for today. We will go deep into the history of the troubled relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. I mean, even, it's so funny that you dealt with a small moment in that time and you feel like there was infinite amounts that you could have written about on either side of it too. So you picked like a narrow period and yet it's like a fractal. You like go into it, it endlessly expands no matter where you look at it.
1: Well, exactly. And that's why when it started at the very very beginning after
0: world war ii it was like Wait, yeah, the very always... very beginning that's not the very very beginning no i know
1: you're right you're right you're right let's go <laughs> do
0: you want to, to go wait. to 1917 do you want to go to 3000 bc sure yeah, there were some sure. readers
2: who asked for that actually yes yeah no of course Deciding that's where right to start was hard that's
1: right yeah it's okay so you should have started by saying first the earth cooled uh <laughs> Adam and no, you have
0: to start with the creation man you can't even start with the <laughs> cooling you're all,
1: you're always so late <laughs> Wait, the creation didn't the creation come after the cooling?
2: Yeah,
0: what you creation. Cre- oh,
2: of the earth. Earth. I was saying. Humans. Oh,
0: you're saying humans. I guess. Okay, sure. Yes, the creation of humans came after the creation of the earth. Anyway, this sounds like a kind of topic we might talk about on our conundrum show. Um, but we're not going to because we have so many other amazing conundrums that you all have sent us. And when you think about conundrums, you ask yourself, who would you like to talk over conundrums with? Who is a person you would like to talk over conundrums with besides, say, John Dickerson and Emily Bazelon? You would might want to talk it over with Oprah, or you might want to talk it over with the Pope. The Pope might have some really interesting things to say. He seems like a very thoughtful man. But after Oprah and the Pope, maybe my top choice would be Stephen Colbert, who is so smart and so funny and so interesting uh, and deep. And guess what? We're going to be talking over conundrums with Stephen Colbert. Stephen is going to be the guest at our December 7th live show uh, at 92nd Street Y in Manhattan. And you can still get tickets. There's still some tickets available. Please go get them. Uh, They are at slate.com slash GapFest live. There's also a pre-show cocktail hour with us, not with Stephen, um, for people who purchase the VIP ticket package. Um, And it's going to be awesome. You've sent us so many great conundrums. I have a some that I feel like we might talk about. If you could only save one from death, which would you choose? A healthy 200 foot 500 year old tree or a small family of monkeys? If you could convince one specific person of one specific thing, who and what would you choose?
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I feel like Stephen is kind of a combination of Oprah and the Pope in one all wrapped up into one person
2: contains multitudes literally
0: yeah if you want to get a conundrum that we and Stephen Colbert will weigh in on get it to us by December 1st at slate.com slash conundrum but mostly go get tickets slate.com slash GapFest live to see us at the 92nd Street Y on December 7th. And if you cannot make it to the live show, don't worry, there's also a streaming option so you can watch it remotely from someplace outside of the island of Manhattan. Hey, GapFest listeners, the holiday season is upon us. It is literally upon us. It is as upon us as it can be. And the Slate Shop is the perfect place to take the guesswork out of your gift list. You can browse our selection of hand-poured candles, Classy cocktail kits, stunning stationery, expertly crafted pasta makers, and everything in between. We even have official merch for the Slate fans in your life. From November 24th to 27th, that's Black Friday through Cyber Monday. We're offering 30 percent off all items in the store. Get your gift sets, stocking stuffers, White Elephant gifts, and a treat for yourself while you're at it by going to slate.com/shop. That's slate.com/shop. Happy shopping! The New York Times polling guru Nate Cohn wrote a buzzy article this week arguing that polling is Wait, broken. issue
2: polling. <sighs> <laughs> that <laughs> was mean, what it was about.
1: Let the well, poor man make the, his no, introduction. It, and then it is we about
0: can... issue polling, but it's but it's but the but it's like the sort of the whole nature of polling itself becomes
1: David, problematic stop. if That's issue fine. polling is broken. This is the topic of the conversation. Yeah.
0: Do the introduction anyway. So we're
2: scolding. The day is still so young. The,
0: anyway, Nate Cohn argues that voter behavior and voter kind of self-assertions about what they believe or what they care about don't seem to be well aligned. So so John, not Emily, John, Obviously. what is the core of Nate Cohn's argument and does it seem new or uh, relevant to you?
1: I didn't find it that new. It's incredibly relevant. The core of his argument is essentially is on issue polling that what voters say they care about May not actually be what they care about when they vote, so they say they care about the economy, but it turns out democracy and abortion might be more important to them when they um when they actually cast their vote um, and the reason I think it's not that new and and Nate knows all this too, and i so i don't want I don't want to make his argument seem more blunt than maybe it is, but we've always known that voters say one thing and behave in another way. I mean, there's a lot of shadow Trump voters that we used to talk about and that's a version of that. But more more broadly in in all of the work that I've done with public polling, you know, and I have committed basically every sin about polling and repeated some even in our last discussion of the Times uh, battleground polls. But one of the things that's always frustrated me is that is that in issue polling no one was ever able to, to make the link for me between whether pe- what people say out loud uh, and how they actually behave when they make their vote, you know, that there's a strong linkage there um, between opinion and behavior. And so I've always felt like this was a huge weakness in issue polling. Um, and then I have a, a much larger weakness in the obsession with polls, which is the real actual problem with polling, um, which is that polling misses this moment and diverts a lot of our necessary attention in campaigns um, in a really dangerous and bad way, which is actually the real problem with polling.
2: Can we talk more about that? When you say misses this moment, do you mean because we're a year out from the election or do you mean the polls are not reliable in some broader way?
1: Yeah, I guess what I mean is what's our job in as political journalists or as journalists, which is it's basically to help people understand what's going on in our world. In the particular moment, our job is not just to explain what the issues are that people face and what's going on in their lives, but also there's um, a huge challenge to the American democratic system. And that's where all of our attention and prioritization and focus should go. And um, that isn't to say we shouldn't talk about polls. Obviously, we should. It doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about strategy. We should. But I think that you know, in 1962, Daniel Borston wrote a book um, called The Image, which is about creating pseudo events. And polls, basically pseudo events are events created by politicians and and the news industry to give themselves something to cover. They're not actually what's happening. They're the sort of fake thing that's happening that then lets everybody cover something. Polls are basically that. Um, and that's, that has a place, but um, it's much more important, I think, both to use polling to understand the way people understand their country, but then to really just spend a lot of time talking about what's actually happening, what policies might improve some of these big systemic problems we face, um, and whether the people who are running for office have any clue about how to bring those policies to
0: fruition. I think because my brain works so slowly these days, I get so perplexed by these questions. But- Given what you just said there, John, when you look at issue polling today, it's clear that people are very concerned about the economy. They don't think the economy is in great shape. And yet, the actual numbers tell us the economy is in pretty good shape. And then there's the question of what are the electoral implications of the fact that people don't think the economy is in good shape, even though it is in good shape? And what does that mean for the 2024 election? Given that, like, how do you deal with all that? Is it you, you don't pay attention to the fact that people have this misguided conception about what the economy is, or you do pay attention to that and try to change it, or it shouldn't be pulled at all?
1: The first question is like, so if
0: if you were trying to think this through in the presidential context,
1: what where does the economy fit in terms of the things that a president can control is another is another issue in other words, um, there are some issues that are really important to the country that a president has a lot of effect on, and some that that the president doesn't have any effect on, and is our obligation to spend more time on the things that presidents can can affect in terms of educating voters for the purposes of them being in a position to make a wise choice. But back to the question on the economy um, you know so much of the polling goes to people and says, and say, oh, they're really concerned about inflation. And then it gets into this kind of loop where people hear that they're concerned about inflation and then they continue to be in con- concerned about inflation. So, what's our obligation? Our obligation is to explain why inflation is the way it is, what policies may or may not have affected that inflation, whose policies of the two people who are likely to be running will help or hurt inflation. Um, even the very theory of inflation itself is under some roiling and considerable debate. So maybe there should be a conversation about that, but to just constantly, you know, take the dipstick and figure out what people think about inflation instead of informing them, not just about inflation, but about the context of the economy with respect to employment, with respect to the changing workforce, with respect to the inequities, um, in compensation, um, the I mean, when you think of all those stories that and conversation uh, conversational threads that we talked about with David Leonhardt, that's what we should spend all of our time on. Polling can tell us where and why people you know have a view that may be wrong about the economy, and so in that sense, it's it's useful. I guess for me, it's just a question of massive imbalance between the time we spend explaining what's happening and the time we spend talking about people's perceptions of things, which because we haven't explained anything are necessarily, in many cases, misguided.
2: Can we talk about this experiment that Nate Cohn did? I was really interested in this. So basically what he's wrestling with, if I understand correctly, is that when you look at the issue polling that The Times and lots of other media organizations did before the 2022 election – you find a mismatch between what voters said they cared about and the election results. So it's not that the polls were off in terms of the horse race numbers, but their predictions about causality were wrong, right? So it seemed as if um, voters cared much more about the economy, I think, than about abortion and democracy. And then when you looked at the close races, it looked like actually abortion in particular mattered a great deal. I'm probably oversimplifying a little bit. But to test this, so Nate and the Times did an experimental poll where they focused on what they called persuadable voters. So people who were undecided or said they were open to supporting either candidate. And then they split those persuadable voters into two groups. One group got the following question. Would you be more likely to support a Democratic candidate who says Donald Trump is a unique threat to democracy or a Republican candidate who tried to overturn the 2020 election? So that's A. And B is same Democrat, but the Republican candidate says we should move on from the 2020 election. And so the hypothesis here is like, okay, well, if democracy doesn't matter to voters, then um, you might get the same answer. But actually, they got very different answers, suggesting that people really did care and did not want to support the Republican candidate who wanted to overturn the 2020 election, showing that these democracy concerns are really top of mind for voters. except for this weird confounding <laughs> additional fact, which is when they were asked about Trump in particular, they didn't seem to understand that Trump was a dangerous democracy, which I got completely stumped by in trying to understand all of this. Like Until that point, I was like, oh, good, democracy really matters to people. Democracy is something I care about and write about all the time. How lovely. And then I was just like, well, now what do I do with this?
0: I, I was interested in this experiment, but I did find it a kind of, Uh, rube goldberg kind of experiment it didn't it it seemed to me kind of complicated it's both complicated and hypothetical at the same time and therefore if you if you're worried that voters beliefs and their actions are already mismatched then you, you you put it in this highly experimental state with a kind of weird hypothetical that's hard to understand why do you think that that is getting at voter behavior any better than asking them directly what they believe um, I, I, w- I was I was sca- I mean, I I wanted to believe there's a huge core of people who will vote against
2: the election overturning candidate
0: people trying to destroy destroy democracy. I, I like the idea of it, but I didn't I wasn't actually persuaded by that as an experiment.
1: And exactly. And also to what end? Like if the fact is, if, if we as journalists think that there is an actual threat to democracy, which I think is pretty obvious and easy to figure out as you watch members of Donald Trump's party prepare the way and clear the way and and disappear the memory of the multiple month effort to overthrow the last election if you think there's an actual threat to democracy then that is rome burning and like obsession with polls is sort of the violin and, uh, when you're and you're fiddling while rome is burning spend the time on rome burning not on the you know precise questions of the Fs, of the you know f hole in the violin that you're that you're working on i mean it just feels like i'm not saying throw out all polling i just think this is a great question that tees up what i was trying to say earlier in terms of just our time and attention more broadly i'm not i'm not you know, I'm not going overboard here, but um, although
2: to be fair, I mean, polls aren't just for journalists. They're also signals to campaigns about what they should talk about, what ads should be about, right? And so, yeah, but they've got sense- their own
1: money to. They can do their own polls and spend their own money. I mean, our job's not to inform campaigns.
2: Sure, I didn't I just meant that the significance of polling is not is actually I don't think of it as primarily being for journalists. I understand these are polls by
1: journalists. But these are polls by journalists. <laughs> like what's our job with doing these polls? How are we serving our purpose, our major purpose with these polls?
0: Can we talk about the fundamental premise of the the cone piece a little bit and and in particular, this idea that what voters vote for is mismatched with what they say they believe and what they care about. And I, I'm sure you guys remember What's the Matter with Kansas, the Thomas Frank book from the early 90s. John's laughing, scoffing. I think it was the early reasons. 2000s, wasn't it?
2: I think. Yeah, I feel like you made it too early, revealing that we are all really old.
0: We'll look it up we'll get, we'll get an answer from Julie as we're taping here. But the idea of what's the matter, Kansas is that people voted in Kansas were voting against their economic interests. And, and, and they, it was clear that their economic interests would be served by voting for Democrats, according to the thesis of the book. And they were not voting for Democrats. And, um, somehow in that he- in my head, that what's the matter with Kansas uh, is now connected with a story. I don't know if you guys saw the story in the times today about this son who turned in his father, uh, for his January 6th, his January 6th uh, protesting January 6th insurrection, his father had been one of the people pushing on cops and, and the son uh, turned in his father. And it turns out when you like dig into who the father is, the father's not a particularly like MAGA crazy person. He's not particularly conservative. You know, he had there's not, not, but a mis- mishmash of, of beliefs. And it's, what does it mean that people's economic interests their even their 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 interests in their own health and safety and and security are not what guide how they just dis- make decisions around politics you know has it always been ever so and we're just only noticing it now or is it actually something different where we are so tribally sorted by our political beliefs that that's that's what's happened
1: I think it can be both, and I would add in a third, which is that if you are a strong supporter of a particular party or person, you will come to believe whatever they tell you about the way the economy works. And so you're you're affirmatively voting for Donald Trump, for example, even though Trump, you know, is responsible for many of the policies that created the um explosion in the debt and deficit that you say you care so much about because you think it has a link to inflation. Um, and even though Donald Trump has no interest in cutting any of the major drivers of the debt and deficit, which you otherwise have said you, you think contributes to inflation. And and we've seen that particularly on the right with positions on t- free trade, Russia, um, basically character, um, Anything that used to be uh, held by Republican voters as the core of their belief system have been radically changed when you enter Donald Trump into the, into the um, equation.
0: The Thomas Frank book, by the way, is 2004. And of course, John and Emily are correct. This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are not a tech podcast here at the GABFEST, but we are human beings concerned about the future. And the turmoil in the AI industry this week has opened a fascinating window on the debates about how artificial intelligence should be monitored and marketed and regulated and commercialized and built. So we're so happy to be joined by Charlie Wardell of the Atlantic who wrote a wonderful piece about the fight within OpenAI about the future of AI. Charlie, welcome to the GabFest.
3: Thank you for having
0: me. So obviously we're having you on uh because of what happened at OpenAI. Sam Altman as of Wednesday morning when we're taping is back at OpenAI. The kind of quasi company, the sort of company, the non profity but also profity company that he ran until Friday that created the best known and most widely used uh, general tools in AI, Chat GPT and its spin-offs. And Altman is now back after this bizarre and surprising disagreement. Wait,
2: he is? News flash. I didn't even yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You, sorry. you weren't <laughs> up
0: at 1 a.m. when they announced it? I am That's so weird. sorry. I yeah. was
2: like, uh, Altman, who's yeah. now at Microsoft. Yeah. No, no. Okay, yeah. we can cut all of that.
0: No, no, leave it in. Leave <laughs> it in. It's it's, it's it's the way we've all been yanked hither and yon. Um, anyway, had this bizarre and surprising disagreement with the board that ran the company and its nonprofit. There was an investor and staff revolt, a near sweeping of the entire staff into Microsoft along with Altman. Now a massive reversal. The board is basically gone except for one member of it altman is back a new board is sort of in place so charlie as 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 near as you can tell from your reporting what was the altman expulsion about and ha- and, and then please connect it to the larger issues that divide people in ai and do it uh, in 37 seconds
3: phenomenal <laughs> uh, i i will be i will be very transparent here unlike open ai um, that i don't I think anyone who tells you they know exactly why he was fired, like exactly why, is is not telling the truth. Cause I I'm not sure there is a, a very well connected reason there. Um, my my reporting has has shown and, and it's tough it's tough to like, you know, verify a lot of this because essentially what we've been seeing is like a lot of like petty grievances being played out in like this very big way. I think that's a really funny th- or kind of you know ironic part about all this is these are supposed to these are billed as like debates between the people who think like you know civilization could come to an end due to this product but like i don't know if, if you saw yesterday there was a document being shared around that was just sort of like airing dirty laundry about like sam and how he ran open ai but it was like you know he let some people go before thanksgiving that was super rude and again not to you know not to downplay like firing people the disagreements felt a lot more petty than like you know the terminator is going to come and destroy everything which is interesting essentially what's going on here i think is that there is a long time struggle inside the company between people who believe that in OpenAI's original principles as a non that you know they're supposed to be developing these very important potentially very dangerous tools very slowly with an eye towards safety and you know making sure that the ai is quote unquote aligned which you know means it's it's being built with um humanity's goals in mind and then this group sort of personified by sam altman which is wanting to run openai a little more like a silicon valley tech company interested in having it raise money wants it to have commercial products that get you know used so it can generate revenue in order to sort of service this mission of, you know, building out the AI. Basically, this stuff's expensive. You, you know, are going to need to have a lot of money to build it out and have it be the best. So we might as well run this like a tech company. Uh, And those tensions basically came to a head. But sort of what I'm seeing right now and what I'm hearing right now is that is that this was the his initial firing last Friday seems to be just incredibly short-sighted. Like a group of people who were so principled or so focused on one narrow sliver of this that they legitimately did not think that the money was going to get mad. That Microsoft, which has, you know, basically yoked his reputation to this company, wasn't gonna freak out. That Sam wasn't gonna go out and try to either start his own competitor or, you know, bring other people with him. I I genuinely think from doing my reporting, that the people in charge on the board who did this did not game that out one bit. It's just incredibly short-sighted.
2: Which is crazy and fascinating. Also somewhat reflects that they're not necessarily from Silicon Valley tech world, right? Like they are not the people you would necessarily imagine being in control because they date from the nonprofit era. And so that's why they were so focused on preventing their own company from going too fast, as opposed to thinking of these larger business environment questions.
3: There, There's a strain in this that is both being talked about, but not probably talked about enough. And it's a little hard to report on, but um, I think that a component of this is that is this effective altruist vein and community inside open AI. And you know i think we saw it a little bit with um uh ftx and sam bankman-fried and and sort of this idea of of running of running these companies and making these decisions in a way that's like you know part of this like hyper rationalist mentality right that's just like i i don't i don't re- i don't really care what other people think it doesn't really matter you know all the things that that came out about, about SBF were like, I don't read books, books are a waste of time. You know, that that kind of stuff. It's part of this sort of mindset that I that is very prevalent in that community, which is obviously, you know, there's a lot of of intelligence there, but also this like kind of narrow, narrow focus on a principle and just not really caring about anything besides that. And I think that there's that strain in inside OpenAI and inside a lot of the like Silicon Valley AI community. And I can see that that sort of mindset lining up with this idea of we have to fire Sam because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter what anyone does. And then when that like, you know, crashes against the rocks of, of reality and capitalism, it's like, no, it does matter. It matters quite a bit. And a whole bunch of, you know, powerful people are going to step in and put pressure on you. And you know, I just wrote a piece that, that came out late last night for The Atlantic that's just like, the money always wins. Like, that's what this shows. This was sort of a, you know, a principal decision based by this, like, non-profit side of the organization versus, you know, the sort of capitalist side of it, the Silicon Valley operators. And like, you know, look who comes out on top. Charlie, can you explain a little bit that weird corporate structure as I,
1: I guess I understand is the money side was that meant to fund the larger, bigger project to create uh, artificial general intelligence, which the nonprofit side oversaw, like what their, that sort of weird structure, and and weren't they supposed to have the larger view with humanity's um, interests in mind? Because you, you're essentially saying they didn't see the forest for the trees, and yet that's kind of, isn't that the whole point of them, is to kind of have this larger view to save us all from AI going crazy?
3: OpenAI is founded in, in 2015, and the idea of OpenAI is basically like Google is coming up with Google DeepMind, which is its AI deep learning, you know, branch, and sort of looks like it's going to be this, like, you know, the, the strongest force in building out all, all of this new artificial intelligence. And a bunch of people, including Elon Musk, are really kind of worried about, you know, this massive tech company with a huge war chest becoming, you know, the dominant force and commercializing their product sort of ruthlessly, right? So if, you know, they're they're worried about developing artificial intelligence and they say this needs to be done in a nonprofit structure away from sort of the big tech companies. So they found it as this nonprofit, very sort of, you know, straightforward. We're going to build this for the betterment of humanity. All of the things in their like charter basically say, like, if at any point, we see that someone else is building out and getting close to general intelligence, we will shut stuff down and we will help them do it safely. If at any point we are building something that seems really dangerous, we will shut it down. This is all written in the charter. At any point, we can just burn it all or stop and we don't owe you anything because we are a principled nonprofit. All of these different categories. Then in, it's either 2018 or 2019, I'm, I'm not, totally sure on on the exact date they basically realize we we need money we need in order to do this so they create what's called this capped profit um you know basically like a normal venture you know raising part of their company and then the nonprofit board sits above that and that's the structure that we have you know today and so there's all these different and you know parts to this like sam did not take any equity in the company And that was part of this principled move to say, you know, at any point I could be removed. And obviously that's why he was removed as quickly as he was. Uh, He had no protection, unlike someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who, you know, has the majority ownership of the company and he won't be removed from Facebook until he wants to be. Anyhow, that's kind of the structure. What's so fascinating and ironic about, about all this is the board was trying to make this very principled decision. In doing so, what it basically did was drive Sam into and and potentially all of the company, right? Like most of the company was gonna go, drove all of them into the arms of Microsoft, a you know, multi-trillion dollar tech company. So it's literally the opposite of what OpenAI was founded for. And and it's just it's bonkers to me that that you know nobody saw this coming. And even from the perspective of safety. If you're the people there who are super worried about a super intelligence, you know, coming about, going rogue, being commercialized, whatever it is, the last thing you want to do is take some of the most, you know, brilliant minds in your company and force them to start a competitor outside of the nonprofit, you know, charter that you created. It's like one of the worst possible things you could do if you're worried about safety.
0: Yeah, it's an it's it's an extraordinary own goal here. The I wonder if you think that there's. That it is possible for technology firms to exist within a constrained nonprofit structure. I mean, I would argue that the track record here is really bad. The Mozilla, I guess Mozilla, which makes Firefox, is a nonprofit foundation, but that is a marginal player. Um, Napster had these kind of, I don't know if Napster was strictly, but it had these idealistic elements and it just couldn't. Last the the one sort of success you can point to is Wikipedia, but Wikipedia isn't really a technology company. It's not building technology exactly. It's building a sort of collective, shared. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't depend on technological expertise to succeed. It just depends on the work of lots of people, and so that allows it to to, to maybe exist.
3: Yeah, Signal is is uh, the messaging app. The secure messaging app is is a version of this exact corporate structure, uh, but again, it's not it's not what it is. I mean, this is especially hard when you're talking about artificial intelligence companies. So, like, some of the reporting I've I've done in the past about OpenAI and like its its future is that Sam believed and and sort of you know helped crunch the numbers on this that like in order to get a supercomputer that was going to be able to train, say, GPT-5, they were going to need to raise about $10 billion. Projecting forward, the supercomputer that would train whatever GPT-6 would be, would be $100 billion. And, you know, and then going forward more and more and more, like to level up in this particular game, you know, it's different than like a social network where your costs are like relatively fixed. And obviously you'll go and, you know, you need to raise money. You need to do stuff. You can sell this advertising. This is like, we have to build a supercomputer that's never been built before in order to (laughs) simulate human intelligence, whatever. It's really hard to do that in a nonprofit structure, right? Like if you need a hundred billion dollars at some point, you can't like, you know, I don't I I just don't know how it even works.
2: So is it good for humanity that Sam Altman is back at OpenAI because we'd rather have OpenAI be charting the course forward than Microsoft for artificial intelligence? Because even if like they're going to overhaul the board and some of these effective altruists are going to be disempowered, at least it's not. Like a completely profit-driven corporate titan?
3: Yeah, probably. I mean, <laughs> uh, I I think that the in, in some ways, this has all been like a phenomenal branding exercise for OpenAI
2: because everyone will know what it is now.
3: Well, everyone knows what it is, but it's also you know it, the sort of um, everything hovering over this is this idea that there's all these people inside this company. Who are, who are legitimately terrified that they're close to building a super intelligence that can blah 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 you know like that the stakes are so high that's sort of been hovering over all this and i I think you know at the risk of of seeming really naive, like right now their most powerful tool is is chat GPT and gpt four which is fine and good and a, and a cool product and will probably revolutionize a lot of how we do certain things, but at present. Like, they don't have any proof of concept of achieving human intelligence, right? And and it's not necessarily clear from, you know, my reporting or from any scientific perspective that they're going to get there. And I'm willing to entertain that all of that could happen. But I think that there's this way in which, like, I really think there is kind of a cultish element to all, all of this, like almost like a doomsday cultish element inside Silicon Valley, inside a lot of these companies where they believe that they're close to, to something like this. And, you know, maybe they are, they're not letting on to us, but right now, the way these tools work is they're kind of like, you know, fancy autocorrect, right? Like they're just kind of guessing the next word. They're just kind of doing this thing. That's very far from We're about to, you know, destroy humanity or just level the economy. And so I think a little of what has happened here is it's got us all sort of reciting their narrative of like, is it good for humanity? Is it, you know, is it whatever? And I think that that's like it, obviously that's an open question. We have no idea what they're going to build in the future, but like at present, they're just, they're just a tech company. And so, like, we wouldn't really be asking that of, like, you know, is it good for humanity that, uh, you know, Travis is out at Uber or whatever like that. We've, they've got us all, like, really kind of, you know, bought into the narrative. And, and that's fascinating.
0: Charlie Warzel of The Atlantic, thanks for coming on The Gabfest. Thanks for having me. Hey, Slate Plus members, it's survey time again, which means it's your chance to tell us what you think about Slate Plus and Slate. It'll only take a few minutes and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Again, that's slate.com slash survey. I want to give a big thank you to our Slate Plus listeners. It's Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. Because of our Slate Plus listeners, we've been able to keep doing the Gap Fest for so long and you get a lot of good stuff for your subscription. You get bonus segments on every episode. You get discounts to live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and you get our Slate Plus segment every week. Uh, And our Slate Plus segment this week, we'll talk about Rosalind Carter, her death, and the 77-year Carter marriage. So if you are a member, thank you. Please enjoy your membership through the holiday season. If you're not a member, go to Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Emily Bazelon, who produces a magnum opus at a Taylor Swiftian or young Mozartian pace, has a huge new piece in the New York Times, Was Peace Ever Possible?, in which she had a discussion with seven experts, three Israelis, three Palestinians, and one American, who walked into a bar.
2: They walked onto Zoom. They
0: all had close-up views of the 1990s peace process between Israel and the PLO about what happened with that, what didn't happen. It is a really, really fascinating discussion that goes deep into the Oslo Accords and why they failed, as well as a whole bunch of other things. The Madrid talks, the post-Oslo hail mary by the clinton administration to broker peace and why that failed um and i think well i guess we can talk about what it concludes but to me it concluded is like why peace was never as close as it felt like it was in the late 90s that it that those of us who thought oh it's something there's a permanent settlement here maybe it was always further away than we believed but emily it is um it's a really deep story uh why don't you talk about what you were trying to do with it. To start by telling us why you decided you wanted to try to tell this story at a moment when, where the peace process is so far away that it's beyond the Hubble Telescope's range of, of sight.
2: I guess I had two kind of deep hungers. One was to go back to this moment in the 90s that I remember well, because I was living in Israel in 1993 and 94. And it felt to me, not that peace was inevitable, but that it was really attainable uh, and kind of around a a couple of corners. And then that proves to be a mirage. And I wanted to remember and understand what went awry um, and kind of test the traditional narratives that are out there about that from the Palestinian side, the Israelis, the Americans. And then the second craving I had was just to have Israelis and Palestinians talk to each other um on a zoom because i <laughs> cuz that was obviously how we had to do the conversation cuz people were all over the world i just feel like we have not been talking to each other jews and muslims aren't talking to each other enough that there's a way in which the division and the pain and the extremism of the moment is pushing people apart and i just simply wanted to have a conversation and that part of it went really well over zoom and we asked the participants to basically create a group history lesson from their different vantage points not an oral history exactly cuz most of them weren't there but they were all keenly informed about these events and so we wanted to kind of weave together their perspectives
1: emily is it is it that this is also that this is important because a lot of the way people Read what happened in Oslo uh, or in and around the Accords, why they came to be, and then the betrayals afterwards locked in the worldviews that then determined the behavior leading up to October 7th and even now. I mean, so for example, if, you're in, in, if you live in Israel and you believe that your side genuinely tried to make peace in Oslo, and then in return for that, you had the second Intifada, which is the basically the more terrorist um, infused protests, then you think, well, we'd be crazy to ever believe that a peace is possible. And so we must, you know, behave as if terrorism is always around the corner, that this embedded all kinds of mindsets that we're living with right now.
2: Yeah, exactly. And one of the participants in the panel, Limor Yehuda, who's a law professor at Hebrew University and the author of a book called Collective Equality, She said exactly that, that there's this idea, okay, there was no partner for peace. Let's just set aside whether that's true as a um, narrative about the Palestinian negotiators, in particular Yasser Arafat. But her point is like that has created this idea in Israel that – there's no point in trying, and that is allowing for this um, occupation that, in Limol's view, is deeply unjust, is an existential threat to Israel and to Israelis. And she really wanted to push back on the idea that that Israelis can afford to go occupy, you know, five million people in the West Bank and Gaza because they're proceeding from this premise, like, oh, we have no choice. That that's just really not true,
0: Emily what are the misconceptions that the israelis and the palestinians and the americans have about what happened in also in the 90s that have persisted you you just mentioned one the the israeli belief there was no one to to no partner for peace that that, that the line about arafat never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity but what are the other ones
2: about arafat and that um idea about him it seems clear that the biggest fault is that there was no clear counter-offer from the Palestinian negotiating team, that they're the weaker party, right? And so one thing you can do as the weaker party in negotiations is just be quiet and force the other side to keep making concessions because you're not responding. And they kind of did that to an extreme, I think, at Camp David and then afterward where they just didn't answer. And so... Uh, that created an enormous amount of frustration, not just among the Israelis, but also among the Americans, though you also have to remember that the Americans are very tied to the Israelis as this kind of close alliance. Anyway, so I think that's that was important. And I didn't understand that either at all or sufficiently. I think another thing that really struck me over and over again was the kind of weak political backdrop for support for peace to some degree on both sides, that you kind of have this idea that this is a failure of leadership. So that after Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated in 1995, there's no strong, great enough Israeli leader and also no strong, great enough Palestinian leader, no Nelson Mandela. And that's that's how we lay the the blame. But the other part of it is that when you look at the polls, you know, Oslo is polling mostly in the 40 percentile in Israel. There's like a big uptick when Rabin is assassinated, but it goes back down again pretty quickly. And the Palestinians are at first thrilled and excited in 1993 when Arafat signs this Declaration of Principles on the White House lawn. You know, this famous picture of Clinton bringing Arafat and Rabin together for a handshake. But then they don't see benefits. There are actually more movement restrictions on them, more border closures, more checkpoints. They're not because of Oslo directly in the 90s, but it sort of doesn't matter because it's simultaneous. And then the economic benefits really go to Israel in the 90s disproportionately in a way that breeds a lot of resentment and frustration, I think, very understandably. And so, I don't know whether you can still say well Arafat could have figured out how to sell the deal but I was struck by this idea that the very best offers from the Israelis you know especially that Ehud Barak the prime minister in 2000 made and then Ehud Olmert in 2008 that there's still not enough for the Palestinians that um that we don't I didn't sufficiently understand that perspective and that that is an historical perspective based on the idea that in 1967, the Israelis, you know, took over historic Palestine and occupied it militarily and so what the Palestinians would get if they got a hundred percent of the territory is still only 22 percent of historic Palestine and so they're not going to give an inch and then there's a separate fight over Jerusalem and the holy sites in Jerusalem <laughs>
0: okay wait a minute yeah. is, you've, come, you've like, unspooled. Yeah, no, this is no, (laughs) but (laughs) there's so much. This answer could literally go on for 45 minutes, and you'd still have just been scratched a tiny surface of it. Yes, but but in terms of
1: the hope that was kindled after Oslo, like it seems to be, there was like a cup. I mean, embedded even in the agreements that make up Oslo, which are before the final status talks, which were where the like really thorny issues were going to be discussed there was a a fragility, you know, there was an asymmetry in recognition. The Palestinians recognized Israel's right to exist, but Israel didn't recognize Palestinian independence. And so into that fragile moment comes what you're talking about, Emily, which is the, so there's the massacre in Hebron, and the settler activity in the West Bank. And so the Palestinians are thinking, well, this was already fragile. We were already kind of getting the wrong end of the deal. And now there's this massacre and the conservatives have all the power. And in fact, Rabin and the US couldn't do anything to kind of stop the settlements. And so if you're a skeptical Palestinian, you see this agreement being in real time undermined by this this behavior. So it feels like there were there were things that happened and when I was reading through the history again, it felt like you're watching a car car crash happen in slow motion, the way in which the tentative, fragile nature couldn't withstand the politics, both within the PLO or in within the Palestinian territories and within Israel.
2: Yeah, and it's extremists on both sides. I mean, the massacre in Hebron is Baruch Goldstein, an American born deeply right-wing, you know, Jewish supremacist who kills 29 Palestinians who are praying for Ramadan and wounds dozens and dozens more. And so, you know, yes, that is a really, um, horrible hinge point in 1994, it comes pretty early. And then, yes, you have the settlements, which the Palestinians, I think many of them are looking at this building and they're thinking like these people are going to withdraw. Why are they building stuff if they're going to leave? Like we don't believe them. And, you know, Ehud Barak has this moment in 1999 where he doesn't do this um, relatively small withdrawal because he thinks, okay, I'm not going to Um, force the Israeli public to stomach this. I'm going to come in with this final status deal and I'll play all my political capital for that. But from the Palestinians' point of view, it's like, well, wait a second. Why should we believe that you're going to implement this big, grand promise when you won't even do this thing that, you know, Bibi Netanyahu actually negotiated before Barack won the election in 99? Like, it just doesn't make sense to them that the Israelis are really going to follow through. And, you know, also for Israelis, this is not just about the israeli palestinian conflict and the kind of local map. it's also about the map of the region and this feeling that they live in this very dangerous neighborhood with um, either hostile or indifferent nations surrounding them that um, the Arab world is not hospitable to their interests or their safety.
0: One thing which I think you get at really well or your 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 uh interlocutors your conversants get at really well is the way in which the PLO never during this period really embodies the Palestinian people as a whole. That the PLO is this small elite, the leadership of which has been mostly outside of of the West Bank and Gaza for a decade and has not been on the ground. And meanwhile, there's this, this grassroots movement that's grown up and some of which becomes quite radical and becomes the seeds of Hamas and which which doesn't really accept the PLO's position, doesn't isn't really jibing with what the PLO wants and is impatient with it. And so that popular that that it wasn't cl- even if even if the Palestinians had a position that they were selling or a position they were gonna put forward, like it's not clear that there was support for it in the among the people who had to support it.
2: Yeah, although I do want to emphasize. So in so the palace, the PLO gets exiled to Tunis in the early nineteen eighties because they make Syria mad at them, and then you have the first Intifada, which is this locally led popular uprising that has you know a lot of stone throwing in it, and then nonviolent tactics like boycotts and strikes, like the things that we tend to revere as part of a civil rights movement. And the people who lead that uprising, they're not Hamas. Hamas also emerges in the first intifada, but they're like Hanan Ashwari and other kind of civic-minded leaders. And they do support the Oslo peace process with a lot of qualms, right? Um, Aswari just did... Um, a talk where she said that she was privately saying to Arafat, this asymmetrical mutual recognition is a real problem. I'm really worried about this. But they didn't want to undermine the PLO because it had taken the PLO so long to get to the table, right? I mean, the PLO sends the 70s and the 80s engaging in terrorism and then being kind of blacklisted by Israel as a terrorist organization that Israel won't talk to. Israel doesn't want the Americans to talk to them. Um, In 1991, there's this big Madrid peace conference that the first Bush administration puts on. And there's only a joint Jordanian-Palestinian delegation as opposed to just one representing Palestinians. And the PLO is not there. And so because of all of those dynamics, oh, also, I left out the first Gulf War where Arafat backs Saddam Hussein and that gets all the Arab countries as well as the U.S. mad at him. So... Anyway, there are all these underlying dynamics. There was support for the PLO among, I think, some of the local leaders in the West Bank and Gaza in the late 80s and early 90s. But because of those other undercurrents, it wasn't enough. And the violence has just, and the extremism has just always been this huge threat that is like impossible to bury. And of course, we've been seeing that so much in the last five weeks.
0: So Emily, to me, there's one you know, crystalline moment in this piece. There's one moment that stood out above everything else. And which to me is the whole story almost, which is there's a conversation where we, we, it's somebody who's at a conference. in, I think in Greece and talking about the, the conflict that the Greeks had had with the Turks and how that, that had been resolved. And someone asked like, well, how long did it take? And they said, 250 years. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we're not at 250 years of if you if you if you start your clock at 1917 or at 1948 uh we are definitely not at 250 years and isn't isn't there this kind of idea that one of your one of your people talks about how everyone has to get really tired and everyone isn't tired enough and in fact they're the opposite of tired right now and so is it one of these things that just has to bake a lot longer and with a lot more suffering and misery and destruction before we can actually hope that it resolves.
2: I mean, that was the sort of immiserating conclusion of that panelist, Ephraim Inbar, who is Israeli and speaks from a more kind of right or center right perspective um, and is very much talking about security. The problem, of course, with that is like, what is the interim and the status quo? It is completely horrible for both sides. And, um, and you know, I think, look, one of the ways to think about what's happening right now is that there is effectively one state in which 5 million people don't have voting rights and lack many other civil rights and are being militarily occupied. And I'm talking, of course, about the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And... If you think about it that way, how long can Israel survive um, on the world stage with that kind of um, a system They, you know, right now, of course, in the wake of the Hamas attacks of October 7th, the Israelis feel like they can't live next to Hamas. And there's, you know, obviously this war in Gaza with all these horrible civilian deaths as a result. But then there's also like the West Bank sitting there, volatile, but also just like not having anything like equal rights. And, you know, to go back to Lemur Yehuda's point, there is, in the view of Israelis on the left, a real, like, huge, enormous, unbearable threat to Israeli democracy and the whole point of having the state, right? It was supposed to be Jewish, but also democratic. How can you say that now? And then, (laughs) you know, there's also this question internationally, like, how long does the world tolerate that? It's also really important to remember from an Israeli perspective that in the 2000s, the second Intifada starts, and it is very violent. There are suicide bombings, buses blowing up. People have this sense that there's no way to end the violence and that it could strike you at any moment.
0: But it's not really the case that both sides are suffering equally. There's a huge asymmetry that Israelis are richer, prosperous, more peaceful, dying in much smaller numbers, have the ability to travel getting economic benefits when i look at the the places where ferocious ethno religious hatreds have been been tamped down it's in places i mean like ireland where where there's a huge economic interest in every for everybody and they're not being a lot of violence and they're not and people just kind of getting along and deal and doing doing day-to-day life because everyone can benefit but the israelis have managed to create a world where they have had up until october 7th at least almost all the economic benefit and most of the benefit of peace uh, without having to deal with the, the suffering of the 5 million people who don't get that.
2: Yes, this is why I think October 7th is such a cataclysmic event, right? Because the Israelis, I mean, first of all, there's just simply the brutality of those attacks and all the kind of waves of trauma that are radiating out from that. But there is also this, I think, essential truth, which was that this idea that you could sideline the Palestinians, you could go make your deals with Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, and afford to ignore them, like it is such utter folly. And now in Israel, there is. It's people are in wartimes. I mean, they've had to evacuate parts of the South and the North. There's not school in parts of the country. Their economy is going to be crippled soon if it'sn't already by all the reservists who are serving in the military. Like there is a huge cost the country is bearing. I mean, when you talk to Israelis now, it is grim. And um, I think that that, I mean, I would argue should shatter the illusion that they can kind of pretend that that the problem of Palestinian rights is something that they don't have to account for
1: did you mean Emily that it was utter folly to try to do the sort of outside in Israel creating relationships with other Arab states to put to to drain the Palestinian issue or it's utter folly to think about it now
2: I meant the former that the idea that you could ignore the Palestinians and go merrily make these deals was wrong because it left out the Palestinians.
1: Was it that they were ignoring it or that there was a strategy, perhaps wrongheaded and foolhardy, but a strategy that if you have relationships with all the other Arab nations, the Palestinians can no longer find allies in those other Arab nations in their case against the Israelis. And therefore, that puts pressure on the Palestinians to come to some kind of agreement.
2: I mean, maybe that was the strategy, but I guess you know, that was the strategy of this incredibly right-wing government run by Bibi Netanyahu, who, you know, has been such a terrible, detrimental leader, right? It was a profoundly misguided strategy. I think the Palestinians need more power, not less. And and that the United States also played into this, the Trump administration, but also the Biden administration.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter when you... <laughs> done talking about uh the israeli-palestinian conflict for a bit and you're like exhausted and just sitting back with a drink and wanting to talk about something else what will you be talking about john dickerson
1: my uh, chatter is going to be about the 2023 usda plant hardiness zone map to which you all will say oh that again um what this is, is a um, a map that's put out by the Department of Agriculture, and it's the standard for gardeners and growers to figure out which plants work, where they live. Um, and what they found is that the 2023 map is about 2.5 degrees uh, Fahrenheit warmer than the 2012 map. So what this basically proves and tells us is what we know, but at a kind of ground level, if you'll pardon the unintentional pun, which is like basically, you know, you can grow magnolias in Boston. Um, that stuff that used to only be able to grow in the South, you can now grow in farther up in the North because the climate is warming. Um, and it's just one of those ways in which, you know, we know about river, uh, oceanfront property becoming more vulnerable and that kind of thing. But this is um, uh, this is just another way in which what has been foretold has come to pass. Um, And what I liked about the um, uh, NPR had a story about this and it quoted um, a gardener who said, oh, phew, I'm not crazy um, because they have been recognizing this in the way they live their lives. uh, And this just affirms that. But you know, that kind of thing where you're like, huh, something's changed here. Fortunately, this is not only interesting data, but it's also psychological Assurance for the gardeners out there. That's
0: why I'm looking forward to my Minnesota oranges, my maple syrup from Greenland. Uh, Emily, what's your chatter?
2: My chatter is about the bonobos. I'm so excited about the bonobos. They are like the perfect antidote from any Thanksgiving topic that that involves fighting and division. Because... The bonobos, um, who are a primate, turn out to cooperate even when they don't know each other. There is this wonderful new study published in Science by Martin Serbeck and Liran Samuni. What they found after much observation was that even when a group of bonobos comes into some terrain that's and they're unfamiliar to the bonobos who are hanging out there, they'll Get together. They'll start picking little nits off each other. They do cooperative behavior in a way that is like at least some humans in the world. Um, and we'd had this belief previously, or scientists had had a belief that humans are the only species that can do this kind of cooperation when they don't know the other creatures coming in and it turns out this is wrong it also seems like dolphins may do some cooperative behavior too but anyway um the bonobos are wonderful my mother loves bonobos so i was particularly excited um about this study because i knew she would be thrilled
1: and if you want to make sure that you continue the fighting at your thanksgiving table on this topic isn't it because the bonobos are um Basically, female-led, and that they are um, that they are the model for cooperation and group work. And I'm stealing all of this from the Bonobo Sisterhood by um, Diane Rosenfeld. But um, basically, that that's why they um, are <laughs> have their act together better.
2: I'm so glad that you brought that point up, and I didn't even have to do it myself. Yes, they are a matriarchal society, and lo and behold, they are thus good at cooperating. I won't say better.
0: That's a hard chatter to top, but I will. First of all, just a little uh, self-service here. CityCast is expanding and uh, we are hiring teams in Austin and Nashville, which is going to be the next two cities where we launch our daily local podcasts and newsletters. And it's really like the most exciting podcasting media project around. We're changing local media. We're growing really fast. We're having a glorious time doing it. It is a really fun place to work. We're and we're creating something that matters in the cities where we are. So if you are interested in working with us in Austin and Nashville, please look at uh, citycast.fm slash jobs. And we're also hiring an events director because we're going to start doing events in our cities as well. Uh, part of our mission, we think, is connecting people in person. And so we're also hiring an events director. So if you think you're the right person for that, please uh, reach out citycast.fm slash jobs. That is not my chatter. My chatter, I was was prompted by, I don't even know what it was prompted by. It was prompted by a thought, I think with maybe with Rosalind Carter's death, that I started thinking about that generation, the greatest generation, ha haha. Uh, and World War II veterans. And I was wondering how many World War II veterans are alive? How many people who served are alive today? You'd have to be in your mid-90s, the youngest are in their mid-90s. I'm going to ask each of you a question and I would like your estimate. So according to The World War II Museum, which keeps these stats with the Department of Veterans Affairs. How many people served in World War II in the U.S.? What do we count as service? I think pretty broadly, not just fought.
2: I'm afraid that I'm going to be off by like two zeros, so I'm not going to guess.
0: John, do you want to make a guess? Like two million. This is not like a right. I mean, there is a right answer. I'm just curious what you guys think the scale of it is.
2: Seven hundred and fifty thousand?
0: Sixteen million.
2: Oh, my God.
0: Sixteen million. So most of those I was people, off of course, by did two not,
2: zeros as predicted you
0: were off by, you were off by a lot um, okay so sixteen million how many of those do you think are alive today
2: a smaller number
0: how many John for some reason the number five hundred thousand
1: sticks in my head and this is awful because I actually used to know the answer to this um because there are so few veterans alive from Pearl Harbor and I once did the math to try to figure out. How many just overall World War II veterans are around. So anyway, I'm sure I'm wrong as I was in everything
0: else in life. Emily, and your guess? Do you have a guess?
2: I have no idea. And I've been so wrong already. I've refused.
0: So the answer is really interesting. John, your guess is so much higher than I would have thought. I asked my mother this, who is a you know, was alive during the war, and and my uncle also alive during the war, what they thought. And they guessed, you know, a couple of thousand. The answer is it's about eighty thousand. They're dying at a rate of about 130 a day. So uh, 120,000 at the beginning of this year, now down to about 80,000. And which I thought was, it was a lot more than I expected. It was a lot more than I expected, given that you'd have to be that old to have served. Listeners, you have sent us really good chatters. Uh, Please keep them coming. Please email them to us at at slate.com. Something that you're talking about at your holiday celebration or cocktail party and our, Our chatter this week comes from Dimitri Nakassis.
4: I'm Dimitri from Boulder, Colorado, and my cocktail chatter is the news that the Library of Congress has posthumously added Mary Ross Ellingson as an author to two books. When she was a graduate student at Johns Hopkins in the 1930s, all of her MA thesis and much of her PhD on the Greek archaeological site of Olympus were plagiarized word for word by her professor, David Robinson, who published them under his own name. I should add that this was not considered acceptable behavior at the time. The plagiarism was discovered by Professor Alan Kaiser, who wrote a book about it entitled Archaeology, Sexism and Scandal, published in 2014. Johns Hopkins University Press subsequently petitioned the Library of Congress to change their records to reflect Professor Ellingson's authorship. It's an important acknowledgement of Professor Ellingson's contribution to Greek archaeology and a reminder of the sexism that prevented her and many other women from being acknowledged for their scientific and intellectual work.
0: That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth, our researcher Julie Hugen. Our theme music is May They May Be Giants. And Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please send your conundrums to us at slate.com slash conundrums or go to slate.com slash live to join us at our live show on December 7th with Stephen Colbert guesting with us and conundruming with us. For Emily Bazelon and John DePerson, and David Plotz, If you're listening before Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. If you're listening after Thanksgiving, happy new year. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Rosalind Carter uh, died this week at 96 years old. Uh, She, of course, was the wife of President Jimmy Carter, and they had one of the longest marriages in America. There are only a thousand couples that have had longer marriage that have a longer marriage than they did. They were married 77 years. Um, Jimmy Carter, of course, is alive. He's 99 years old. He's been in hospice for almost a year now. And she died in her Plains home. She died in Plains, Georgia. She and Jimmy Carter are strongly associated with their home in Plains, Georgia, where they were before they were went to the White House and then went back and settled after they went to the White House. And really an extraordinary, genuinely noble life, like a life of incredible service, most of it after the time that she was famous and an, yeah, an extraordinary partnership.
1: That's what it interests. Me, and Emily, you can straighten me out here, is that the partnership, and particularly from a presidential perspective, was quite what people would consider liberal, just in terms of, um, she sat in on cabinet meetings, President Carter talked about her as a full partner and everything. She actually was, uh, it was more than rhetorical, it was real. And that was certainly true with his 1976 campaign, which was itself a kind of special thing that went around the traditional ways of running campaigns but their marriage and particularly in its founding and i'm relying on jonathan alter's book on jimmy carter which is a great book and has a lot of insight into the marriage and its early days and particularly the very intimate i mean carter i believe shared all of his letters so there are letters from jimmy carter when he's on the submarine long time away from rosalind um you know that are super intimate anyway very traditional marriage, like a very, very traditional marriage, yet in the political context, a non-traditional marriage. And I was interested in what the implication of those two things are, if they are.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today